I want you to imagine the day has been set. You're going to die. Not only you, but your kids, your family, everyone in your people group. The day has been set in the future in which on one day you will be massacred. The government has approved this killing. You have nowhere to run for safety. All of your property, all of your possessions, all of your belongings will be taken by those who are going to kill you. How would you feel? Helpless? Hopeless? What would you do? Well, that is where the Jews are in that predicament in Esther chapter 8. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Esther chapter 8. We're finishing up a sermon series today as a faith family called Unseen Sovereign. For eight weeks, we've been walking through the book of Esther together and seeing how even though God's name never shows up in the book of Esther, even though he doesn't perform a miracle, even though there's never a moment in which he speaks, God is still there. His fingerprints are all over the pages. He is behind the scenes working for the good of his people and for the fame of his name. We saw back in Esther chapter one where King Ahasuerus Brings, invites his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out and to show off her beauty for everyone to see at this big party. Vashti says no, and so she is dethroned. In Esther chapter two, we see where a nationwide search ensues looking for a new queen to replace Vashti. Lo and behold, she's located in Susa, and her name is Esther. She's a Jew. But nobody knows that she's a Jew except for her cousin Mordecai, who also is her adopted father. Then you get later on in chapter two, we see Mordecai who's working at the king's gate and he uncovers a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Well, he tells Esther, Esther tells the king and it comes to find out, yes, that plot was real. Those two men are executed. But the king completely forgets about thanking Mordecai for saving his life. You get to Esther chapter three and you see where a new man arrives on the scene and his name is Haman. He is a horrible, evil, arrogant person. He has been promoted all the way up to number two in all of the land of Persia. And he, as he's walking through the town, everyone bows down, they honor Haman, except for one man, Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow his knee to honor Haman. And so Haman gets so angry, he not only wants to kill Mordecai, he wants to take out all of the Jews. And so through him manipulating the king, he initiates an edict, a law, in which on a day in the future, every Jew in Persia will be exterminated. Well, in chapter four, when the news gets to all the Jews, there is weeping, there is mourning about their plight. We see Mordecai, who's at the king's gate, and before he gets there, he's covered in ashes, and he's wearing sackcloth, and he is in mourning. 
Now Esther is completely oblivious to everything that has happened up to this point. And so she asks, what's going on? And Mordecai tells her, all of the Jews in Persia now have a death sentence upon them. And Haman is responsible. You need to go to the king. You need to go to your husband and intercede for us. Well, Esther is initially reluctant. She doesn't want to get too involved because she says, if I go to the king unannounced and uninvited, then I might very well be killed. Well, Mordecai is very clear with his cousin, who's also his adopted daughter, in which he says, listen, if you don't go, another deliverer will rise up. Make no mistake about that. But you and your family will be killed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to this position as queen for such a time as this. The queen says, I'll go. Call upon the Jews to fast for me for three days. After three days, Esther goes into the presence of the king. He extends the gold scepter, invites her into his presence and says, Queen Esther, what would you like? Even up to half the kingdom, it's yours. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet. So off they go, the three of them go to a banquet, and a second time the king asks her, what would you like, even up to half the kingdom? And she says, why don't you come to a banquet tomorrow? And at that banquet, I will give you an answer. Well, Haman goes home feeling really good. He's had some good wine. He got some alone time with the king and the queen. And when he gets headed towards his house, he comes across Mordecai, who once again refuses to honor him. He becomes so angry and upset. He gets home, he invites his friends over, and they're talking together with his wife in the room and says, I'm one of the most wealthiest men in the world. I've got a supportive wife, wonderful kids. I've been promoted. I've got the second highest position in all of the land, and yet I'm still unhappy because Mordecai refuses to honor me. Well, his friends and his wife suggest to him, why don't you build a gallows? say 75 feet high. And then tomorrow morning, why don't you ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on the gallows? Well, Haman likes this idea. And so he initiates uh, for this, these gallows to be built and then he goes off to bed. But that night in Esther chapter six, we see where the king can't sleep. He's having a hard time getting his Z's on. And so all of a sudden he decides, you know what? I'm gonna call upon my servants to come and read to me my royal chronicles. Well, the very scroll that they grab, they turn to the exact page that reminds the king that Mordecai saved the king's life from an assassination attempt. Well, the king asked his servants, what have we done to thank Mordecai? And they, 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 nothing. In walks Haman. And Haman, excuse me, the king asks Haman, what should the king do for the one he desires to honor? Well, arrogantly assuming that he's talking about himself, Haman asks for the one thing that he doesn't have, the opportunity to be king. And he says, King, I think that the person you want to honor should get to ride on the king's horse. He should get to wear the king's robe. A noble official should lead the horse through downtown, through the public square, and should be proclaiming out loud for everyone to hear, this is what is done for the, whom, the man whom the king wants to honor. 
And the king says, that's a great idea. Why don't you go and do that, everything you just said, for Mordecai? And it's at that point, Haman's life spirals out of control. After marching Mordecai through the town square on the king's horse, wearing the king's robe, Haman runs home in shame. Can't believe how his life has just fallen apart. He's telling his friends and he's telling his wife everything that has happened. And they say, in essence, you're going down. As they're speaking, we see that the king's eunuchs show up in end of chapter six and they rush Haman off to go be at this banquet with Esther and the king. Well, for the third time, the king asked Esther, Esther, what would you like? Anything, just name it, even up to half the kingdom. And she has one request. She says, spare my life. Spare my people's lives from this assassination attempt, this plan of extermination upon us. Well, the king is confused by her and says, who could ask or who could scheme up such a terrible idea? I imagine Hester, Esther, she is extending her finger and pointing and says, the evil one is this man, Haman. Well, the king storms out of the room, goes to the garden to think about how he's going to respond. Meanwhile, we see Haman hanging back in the queen's presence, begging for mercy. And as the king walks back into the room, Haman trips and falls on top of the queen. Well, the king immediately says, it's time for him to die. Hang him on the gallows that were made for Mordecai. Now, this is an incredible moment where everything has turned in Mordecai's favor. Everything has now worked out for his benefit. To see where he is no longer the one who is in sackcloth and ashes mourning, he has now been promoted. Look and see what happens next in Esther chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Verse 1 says, on that same day, See, it's on that same day that Haman was forced to honor Mordecai through the city square. On the same day that Haman was charged with trying to kill the queen and her people. On that same day, Haman was hanged in the gallows. It's the same day that Mordecai becomes the number two guy in all of the country. He gets to sign the king's name to any document that there is. And now, verse two, Mordecai gets to live in Haman's house. I've only got one word to describe all of this. <laughs> I mean, this is fantastic. God has turned Mordecai's situation around. He's now prime minister. He's got the promotion. He's got the position. He's got the money in the estate. Haman is dead and all looks gravy. 
but it's not. Haman's edict to kill the Jews in Persia was still in motion. The law to exterminate all of the Jews is still in play. You see, the enemies of the Jews, they were sharpening their swords, preparing, waiting for this day to come. So the question that we need to answer today is, how will Haman's edict be stopped? I put this in your notes. I want you to see, number one, that Esther and Mordecai concoct a plan. They concoct a plan. In verse three, Esther is weeping at the king's feet, begging him to revoke Haman's evil plot. She tells him, verse five, if it pleases the king and if I've found favor before him, if the matter seems right to the king and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Esther is broken over the predicament that God's people were in. Yeah, she and Mordecai were sitting pretty in the capital city. But the rest of the Jews were under the sentence of death. Once again, the king shows favor. He gives Esther and Mordecai the green light, verse 8, to write any law that they want. Well, that's exactly what they did. They called in all of the royal scribes to write this new edict for everyone to read in their own language, verse 9, and it would be sent via Pony Express to the 127 provinces of Persia. From India to Ethiopia, verse 10, Mordecai sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. Well, what did the edict say? Verse 11, the king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. So the couriers and their horses, verse 14, take off like it's the Kentucky Derby. They're trying to get this message all throughout the country because millions of people's lives are at stake. Then the text shows us, verse 15, Mordecai's coronation ceremony as the new prime minister. There's great rejoicing. There's gladness amongst the people of Susa and the Jews in every province. They're celebrating Mordecai. When Haman was in power, not so much. But with Mordecai now assuming this role, people are celebrating. Even the people who were not Jewish, even the Gentiles, they professed to be Jewish because they saw the momentum happening. They thought, oh man, we're gonna be in trouble if we don't get on their team. It reminds me of Joshua chapter two as God's people are headed into the promised land. Word is spreading from nation to nation about the Jews coming up from Egypt. And Rahab says in chapter two, verse nine, she tells the spies, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. See, Esther and Mordecai's plan, it has been set and people are taking notice. But then notice number two, that the Jews push back. The Jews push back. 
Chapter nine, verse one, it summarizes everything really well here. It says, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Verse two, not a single person could withstand them. Even the government officials, verse three, jump in and they help the Jews. Look at verse four. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including, verses seven through nine, all 10 sons of Haman. Now remember, the Jews are not the aggressors. They're the defenders. Anyone on that date who sought to kill the Jews, Mordecai's edict gave them the freedom to defend themselves. So the king, he supports this. And so he asks the queen what else she wants. And so she asks, verse 13, for the Jews in Susa to have another 24 hours to defend themselves and for Haman's 10 sons to be hung from the gallows just like their daddy. Well, the king gives the order. The sons are hung and the Jews kill another 300 men the next day. But verse 15, they did not take anyone's plunder. Though the law allowed them the freedom to do so, they did not take any spoils of war. All in all, across the country, 75,000 people were killed and the Jews were saved. So the plan and the pushback were successful. Now, number three, it's time to party. The Jews throw a party. Whether they were Jewish city slickers or rural farmers, The Jews, verse 19, they feasted and they partied. Mordecai, he doesn't want this event to be forgotten. This is a significant moment in Jewish history. And so he declares that from this point forward, it is to be an annual celebration event. Verse 22, during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into holiday. They were to be the days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. Now, this is a holiday that Mordecai started that even continues to this day. It's called Purim. You see it in verse 26. Purim actually took place last week. And Jews to this day will continue to celebrate Purim. It's the celebration of how God delivered his people under the leadership of Esther and Mordecai. And so there's exchanging of gifts, kind of like Christmas for us. Giving gifts to the poor, kind of like Christmas for us. They also had this time where they will gather in the synagogue and they will read the book of Esther out loud. And every time that you get to the name of Haman, people will scream, boo. They'll stomp their feet. They'll clap their hands. They have noisemakers. They're just, they're trying to blot out the name of Haman. This is an annual party that still exists to this day, all because of what God did 2,500 years ago in Persia. Well, with this influence in the the nation ever increasing for Mordecai, I want you to see that number four, Mordecai's pursuit of prosperity for the Jews. In chapter 10, Mordecai the Jew, verse three, was second only to Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. 
He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all of his descendants. Now think about this. A Jew living in captivity in Persia, away from his homeland, now prime minister, the number two guy in the entire country. And when Mordecai assumed this position of leadership, he thrived. He was a leader of leaders. He knew his leadership was about serving other people. Mordecai is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the greater and better Mordecai who works to bring shalom, who works to bring peace, who works to bring prosperity to God's people through his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus is the servant leader. He is the famous one laboring for the welfare, laboring for the, the prosperity of God's people. In the gospel, Jesus brings shalom. He brings peace and prosperity to God's people. Through his death on the cross, he made a way for you and I to have peace with God and peace with one another. You see, this is what Christ came to do, was to die and to rise again on the third day, giving eternal life to all who trust in him. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, there's coming a day when you take your last breath or he returns to call us home, you will into, enter into an eternal shalom, an eternal prosperity, an eternal peace in the very presence of God. So what are our, our takeaways from the text? As we look and see how God was at work thousands of years ago, what does this look like for you and I today? Well, the first thing I want you to see is this, is that we are to weep over what matters. Weep over what matters. In chapter eight, verse three, Esther, she's at the king's feet. She's weeping. She's begging him to revoke the evil plot that was devised against the Jews. She's weeping over the condition that God's people have found themselves in. They were in physical danger and it burdened her to the point in which she wept. It reminds me of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter one, verses one through chapter two, verse three, where he is in the king's presence and he is weeping because the walls and the gates of Jerusalem have been torn down and have been burned. He's weeping over what matters. When we get to the life and ministry of Jesus in which he weeps over things that matters. He weeps over the death of his friend, Lazarus. He weeps over the unbelief of the Jews. We see him gather the few of his disciples in which he cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If you had only known that your peace had come. Jesus was broken over the unbelief of those who would not trust in him. You get to Romans chapter nine, verses one through three, where we see Paul, he, has, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for my kinsmen, for the Jews, for those who have not trusted in Christ. I wish I could be accursed and cut off from Christ so that they might know him. There was a weeping, there was a burden upon his heart to see unbelievers come to know Jesus. Question, what are you weeping for? 
Are the things that compel you to shed tears, do they really matter in light of Christ and eternity? If you can't think of the last time you wept over someone who was lost, may I say to you, maybe today's a day in which you say, God, would you return me back to a heart that's broken over things that really matter? People who are far from you, who can be restored back into a right relationship with you. Who are you weeping for? Who are you crying out to God? God, would you move in a way that you change them forever? That their eternity is transformed because of your gospel. And so God, would you do that in me? Bob Pierce, founder of World Vision, he once prayed these words, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. When was the last time you wept over those who were far from God? Or when you see those who are hurting, widows and orphans and the poor and the rejected, let your emotions be authentic, but may they come from a heart that says, I'm gonna make sure that my heart is weeping over things that genuinely matter, not the trivial things of this world. Secondly, the gospel is the urgent message we share. Chapter eight, verse 14, the couriers rode out in haste the Texas on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. You see, there was an urgency to this message that these couriers were, were carrying. They had the ability to save millions of people's lives. The Jews' lives were hanging in the balance. They didn't have social media. They didn't have the news stations that would give an alert saying, hey, breaking news, Jews, you get to fight back. They didn't have that. And so these couriers are sprinting, taking this good news out to the far ends of the country. Y'all, we have a more important message to share. There's to be an urgency to the message that you and I share, that we take this gospel that doesn't just save the lives of people, it saves their souls for eternity. You see, eternity hangs in the balance with the gospel that you and I have heard and believed. We have a word to share with the nations and with our neighbors. This week has been crazy for me. My schedule has been wild and um, on Thursday, I'm driving home uh, in mid-morning from an, a meeting that I had, and, and there's two men who are working at this clothes collection spot near my, uh, here in Alabaster, and uh, the Lord just impressed upon my heart, you need to stop and go share the gospel. My initial reaction was, I got a lot to do, Lord. <laughs> I've got a sermon to write. But I said, okay, let's go. So I turn the car around, I go back, and I meet Robert and Willie, um, begin sharing the gospel with them. Willie was very open to what I was saying as I'm walking through the gospel. And then Robert becomes very contentious and he, he's hostile. He doesn't threaten me, but he's very angry. He's been hurt by a lot of people. And I was able to love him well and say, man, let me encourage you. This is what the Bible says and it helps you to rethink and reframe how you've been hurt. And this is what the gospel says to what you're dealing with right now. And the conversation kind of came to a stall. And so I went home and I said, hey guys, I'll be right back. And so I went and got some Bibles and some books that would answer their questions. And I stopped at a gas station and got them lunch and 
took it to him and said, hey guys, this is my gift to you. This Bible, I said, read it. And I said, Robert, Willie, your answers are right here. I'm a pastor here in the area of Westwood. Please come. You're always welcome. My heart was broken, but in that moment, God was teaching me, Kenneth, you're about to preach. Make sure you're doing it yourself. Y'all, the message that we carry matters. Eternity hangs in the balance. Theologian Carl F.H. Henry said it like this, the gospel is good news only if it gets there in time. And there are billions of people who have little to no access to the gospel. And we, as those who have heard and have believed, we have an urgent message from the king. He has given us this message so that we might take it to those who are far from him. Thirdly, in the text, I want you to see that Jesus will overpower his enemies. He will overpower his enemies. The Jews' enemies, chapter nine, verse one, hoped to overpower them, but just the opposite happened. God fought for his people. We see this in Exodus when God's people, they walk through the, the Red Sea and on, on dry land and the Egyptian army follows them into the Red Sea. And when all of the Israel Israel, the Jews, the people of Israel were um, safely on shore. The Red Sea covers the army. God protects his people. Well, one day, God will fight for his people and it will be the last and final fight. I wanna show you what this looks like. Can you turn with me to Revelation 19? Revelation 19. I want you to see what this is gonna look like in the end. Our culture hates what I'm about to read. But it's the word of God. Describing what the end is gonna look like, we see Jesus who comes riding on a white horse. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're here in this text because this is you and I coming with Jesus behind him for this last and final battle. Revelation 19 and 11 says, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true and he judges and he makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying high overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the, of the mighty, the flesh of the horses and of their riders and of the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great, 
Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. This is what the end looks like. Jesus will overcome his enemies. There's coming a day in which Satan and the false prophet who is the antichrist and all of God's enemies who reject the gospel will one day be slain. What took place in Esther chapter nine is minuscule in light of the greater battle that is coming in the future. May I say to you, if you do not know Jesus, you need to trust in him. Your eternity hangs in the balance. And Jesus gladly and willingly died so that you might be forgiven and redeemed. And he is raised from the dead, offering eternal life to all who believe and trust in him. But there's coming a day when you take your last breath or when Christ returns in which you will not have that opportunity. This week, I took a knee at the bedside of a man who's on the brink of taking his final breaths. And as he's about to die, I'm reading Romans 8 into the heart of this man who has faithfully followed Jesus. And as he's, and as he's about to sprint across that finish line of following Jesus, I thought, Lord, I want to finish this well. I want to be sprinting across the tape with family gathered around him and his wife who is saying, I'm ready to go be with Jesus and be with my husband. And I thought, this is, this is why what we do as a church matters. There's nothing more important than this. Life and death are at stake. On whether or not you and I will believe this, this gospel. And for those who are outside of Christ, this is the end when the age comes to a close and everything stops. And for those outside of Christ, Esther 9 has nothing on Revelation 19. This is why you need Jesus. Is on that great day you will be spared, you will be protected, you will be with Christ. Do you see how precious Jesus is? And his enemies, they will be overpowered. The Antichrist and Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire trust in Christ. So where do we go from here? As we're closing out the book of Esther, what, what's this mean for us? I think Mordecai leaves you and I a really good example. And it's your impact point in your notes, and it's this. Strive and speak for the good of God's people. Strive and speak for the good of God's people. 
Esther chapter 10, verse three concludes with Mordecai, who's now prime minister. He's leveraging his position for the good of God's people. He was, verse three, famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. I love this. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of his descendants. Mordecai was exalted to the second highest position. He's right under King Ahasuerus and he uses that position to promote the prosperity of Israel. Well, Mordecai is a type of Christ. Jesus is the one who is high and exalted upon his throne and glory and he uses his power for the good of God's people. You and I, may I say to you, let us leverage all that we have for the good of God's people. May God raise up more and more leaders, men and women who leverage all that God has entrusted to us for the good of his church. May Westwood be better, more healthy, more faithful, more like Jesus, because you and I were striving and were speaking for the good of God's people. We labor to bring shalom. We work to bring prosperity to God's people by holding up Jesus. And you and I, we get to do this together before our unseen sovereign who loves us and died for us and rose again for us and is one day coming back for us.